Hello and Merry Christmas. We are the makers of history. And you're laughing and you've put me off the fucking intro, bro. <laughs> and we're the mate with me, Foz, and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello, Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, one and all, and all the children. Beautiful. Thank you yeah. for that. That's my piece about Christmas for you all. <laughs> I think you're, like, legally forbidden from talking about the children. <laughs> I'm staying 200 yards away from him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, already oh, for Christmas, bro. You Christmas up? Yeah, like I did on my wrapping and shit today. I yo, yo, time. yo, it's Christmas time! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Nice. I was just checking. That was all. <laughs> Have you? Uh, nah, I'm not ready. I've got to still go out and bomb my nieces. I mean, well, yeah, completely. I've got an idea. And obviously, for those, I ain't got to go far because we've got like a massive toy store over the road from my house, basically. I'll literally, I'll drive past it tomorrow, but the car park's going to be that rammed trying to get in there. I'll drive past it, come home, and then walk over there. And I'm just going to go for a browse. I've got some ideas. You know, six year olds, twin girls, two six year olds. Got a fun and presents. Drum kits. Matching yeah. drum kits. Yeah. No, <laughs> my sister would like never speak to me. <laughs> Ever again if I did that. That's a good idea. It would be very funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but apart from that, I'm all set. Nothing will be wrapped, but I'll cut my wife into wrapping them, so that's fine. That's the division of labour. That doesn't make sense. I ain't gotta worry about the wrappage situation. <laughs> well, it's one of those. But she wraps them up really nice and then look very well done. And she spends an afternoon and she has a gin and does them, you know, and has a great time. That's just some Christmas that, music on. Well, I'm not, I can't give a fuck about none of that, to be honest. <laughs> I just, you know what I mean? So, and it, it's just a task to me. And I don't put, I don't put the Christmas spirit into it. Yeah, I don't, I don't look at you and see, like, you know, the Christmas spirit. No, I love Christmas and that. I love Christmas. But, I just like drinking and eating, <laughs> being merry. You know. I don't like doing all the the, the tree and that. Like, I like them mm. to be there. I just don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking then, Captain? What you got? I've got the uh, Spiani, and I put one in the freezer to cool it down, but then I went to put the kids to bed, and I forgot that I'd done that, so I currently have a beersicle. Mate, if you pour that out into a glass, you'll have like super, super strong. It's do literally. It, do it. It's not pourable yet, it's actually just a Yeah, block. I bet there is a little bit, and that's not going to be pure alcohol, because alcohol doesn't <laughs> freeze, does it? I am. I'm going to try and put it on the heating, see if that resolves the situation. Okay, so what, is that it? Is that your only beer? No, I've got a couple of them. I've got enough of oh, them. Oh, go that's alright right, then. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. Spiani is the local one, is that? Uh, Sviani is not the one I get the most. It's from the one that mountain moved. somewhere. No, no, that's uh, Penstein. That's mm. the local one. That's no longer local. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that one's heartbreaking because they used to have all like the local imagery on its label and stuff and they kind of removed all of that and replaced it with like generic fake medieval shit mm. because they no longer have the rights. But oh, no, Sviani is like... Sviani is like not a microbrewery. It's like 
decent sized production get in most places but it's also like still small enough that you can get like a batch and you're like oh god that tastes like shit or sometimes yeah. that's amazing the quality control ain't quite there yeah, <laughs> yeah it's not that they ain't had no <laughs> they ain't had no prints to project managers sort out the quality control section of the... no their, their quality control is a bloke named Pavel comes and drinks and is like yep yeah, good that yeah yeah I'll have some more <laughs> <laughs> oh nice nice man I'm on the Desperados, the Very local, nice. the local delight of Desperados. The, the authentic Mexican flavors of Desperados. Yeah, so for those who don't know, Desperados is like, it's a tequila beer. So it's just beer with tequila in it. It's five point six percent. Is it tequila flavored? Or does it actually contain tequila? I th- I'm pretty sure I googled it before. Let me get. Hang on, ingredients. One of the ingredients. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> this is a good and informative podcast that we do. Sugar. Contains te- tequila. No, In brackets, really? contains tequila. That's what I want from a tequila flavoured beer that they could do. But it's nice. It's like, it's really it's golden in colour. It's sweet. It's got no wheat in it, which is any an absolute buzzing for me, which means I can drink it. <laughs> Absolutely cacking me pants tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the true meaning of Christmas. That is. It's only, to be honest, I've only got these because I walked in the house and I sort of said to myself, well, I need to do this, I need to do that, I need to go over the road and get some beer. And then I walked in the lounge and the Christmas Morrison shops come, so the crap loads of beer in the front room. And I was like, ah, well, I'll put some of those in the fridge for tonight, then. <laughs> so, bruv, what are we doing for this Christmas special? You've sort of kept me in the dark, in it, which I yeah. appreciate. So what, what, what is Christmassy about what we're doing, and what are we doing, and who was there when we were doing it? So, yeah, I've gone for a Christmas history crossover event. And we're going with a carol theme. And are you familiar with the Christmas carol classic, Good King Wenceslas? Of course I am. Good King That one. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for that beautiful rendition. Okay. I'm good at eating them horror notes, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's going to be a vinyl to come with this episode of the podcast. <laughs> Classic carols remixed by <laughs> Your favourite songs, but unrecognisable. <laughs> but did you know that Good King Wenceslas is, or at least was, a real person? I did. I did actually know that. Okay, what did you know? Uh, and I do know... Like, bear in mind, I've got the script up here, but I'm not, honestly, I'm not looking at it. I'm not, I haven't, I haven't looked at what you've wrote, apart from when I quickly flipped through it on my phone earlier on. So I haven't really took it in. But, I know he was, I want to say, somewhere between 1200 and 1400. That's my guess. Uh, so he's a bit earlier than that. He's Okay. Is uh, born in 907 AD. So. Oh, okay, so I know he's. I know he's from, the, well, geographically the Czech Republic or sorry, Czechia. Is he on now? <laughs> is that the deal? Czechia. Czechia is what they're trying to make a thing. Yeah, yeah I like prefer the Czech Republic. I think that's yeah, cool, that sounds though. better. But yeah, anyway, yeah. So, 
Yeah, I know he's like that sort of era. Mm. I know he's like some sort of king. That's it. Okay. So, good King Wenceslas, or to give him his proper name, Václav Przemysl. Hang on, I... How's that come from Good King Wenceslas to... So Wenceslas in, is an English re- rendering of the Czech name Václav, and he belonged to the dynasty of Przemyslid. Oh, okay. Uh, we well, go got with... that long, didn't we, when we translated? Yeah, we did <laughs> Big a, a fuck-up job of that. We're going to use the Czech names through this episode, because basically the English translations are fucking awful. Um, and he was the Duke of Bohemia, or Prince of Bohemia. The Czech title was like Kniaz, and it's... Something between Duke and Prince doesn't exactly translate. So, he was born in 907 AD. So we're talking at the kind of early Middle Ages. Um, this is like knights in armor and that. Knights in chainmail. So if you think of like your image of you know we're talking contemporary of like Vikings, Battle of Hastings, that sort oh, of okay. yeah, image. Yeah. So we're getting there. We're getting there, but we're thinking the horses that don't have armour, we're thinking chain mail and like pointy helmets and yeah. big kite shields, that sort of thing. And then a great British longbow. That comes a bit later. Okay. So we're, we're, this is contemporary to like Anglo-Saxon England. Mm-hmm. So Václav, he is the son of Duke Vratislav I. Who is the gra- who and he is the grandson of Bojevoy. Bojevoy is the first historically documented Czech ruler. Before that, it's all kind of legendary figures. Okay, I was going to so, say already. I'm interested. Say he's the son of a duke and he's called king. So, uh, so for his own title, well, I don't want to jump gonna, ahead, but um, yeah, we're going to come to that a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So we're coming out of like the tail end of the Dark Ages, which is like a horrible term to use in history. We don't like using it anymore. But that idea of like where things are kind, because Dark Ages like implies a moral judgment, and also it's like not necessarily accurate. Some places we're missing records, other places we're not. Like you might say, okay, scan uh, Eastern Europe. Yeah, there's a Dark Age. There's not so much information, but like the Mediterranean doesn't make sense. Okay. Um, so his ancestors, the Przemyslid dynasty, they're rocking around from the 9th century, so the 800s. And Bolshevoy, his grandfather, is the first one who is well attested in the historical record. Like we have birth and death dates, we know about his life. He is ruling from about 850-ish and he dies in 889 eight, AD. Before that in the family history, all these kind of legendary semi-historical figures... The founder of the dynasty is a guy called Przemysl the Plowman. And the legend with this guy is that there was a king, or duke, prince, whatever, called Croc, with a daughter called Libusha. And Libusha fell in love with Przemysl the Plowman. But she couldn't marry him because he's a Man, these names, I'm getting lost there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I love the Czech people, but your names are hard when you're English. They're not easy. They're not, yeah, yeah. They're not easy names for me. The, the, the great vowel shortage of the year 1000. Yeah, well, pff. So Labusha's the princess, yeah, and Lebusha's she the wants to marry Przemysl the plowman. But she can't marry him because he's, you know, a person. Why is he the plowman? 
<laughs> why do you think? Why do you think she wants to marry him? I was going to say. It's what they call me around the back streets of Northfield. <laughs> <laughs> Did somebody call for the plowman? <laughs> so anyway, Labusha claims to have had a vision. And the vision is that they would take a horse to a junction, let it loose, and it would guide her to her husband. So, you know, they're Slavic pagans, it's pre-Christian. Mm-hmm. So they, they do this, they take a horse to the crossroads, let it loose, and it, the horse runs off and goes to a field where there's a man wearing one broken shoe ploughing a field. So the prophecy came true, it led her to the ploughman, so therefore she could marry Pyamasil. Oh, that's fair enough then. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's what you're looking for in a husband, isn't it? Like a man with one broken shoe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at least he's made the effort to get one. Yeah, good you on him. So this is like the mythic on- origins of the Przemyslid dynasty. So, Bolshevoy then, our first historical figure in the 850s, he is... Hang on. Bolshevoy is who again? Bolshevoy, grandfather of yeah. Vatslav. So the first he is the first historical one. Yes. Yeah, that we know about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. I'm on it. So he's the Duke of Bohemia, and he is a vassal or a client of a guy named Svatopluk the First. Svatopluk is the king of Great Moravia. Oh, so okay. So Moravia own was over Bohemia to start with. Yeah. Because Moravia is like south of Bohemia, isn't it? Uh, Southeast, yes, the eastern yeah, half yeah. of the modern Czech Republic. Ah, uh, okay. So, in the in the second half of the ninth century, there are two big players in Central Europe. They are East Francia, in the area of modern Germany, and Great Moravia. So, Great Moravia is a Slavic-speaking country, and its centre point is in modern-day Moravia and Slovakia. Also, including bits of Poland and Hungary. It's a little bit fuzzy about the details of Great Moravia. It might have been so big that it included all of modern Hungary and parts of Romania. It's a bit hard to say exactly where the borders okay. were. Well, that's why they call it Dark Age. Exactly. So there's a lot of like kind of fuzziness here. <clears throat> in the 860s, the king of Great Moravia had written to the Pope in Rome, and he had asked for missionaries to be sent to him to come and convert his people. And the Pope in Rome was like, nah. I'm good, actually, thanks. What? what? Did you want him killed? Because he was like, pagan. Not really, not really sure why the Pope refused. So then the king wrote to the, uh, the the Orthodox Patriarch in Constantinople. And he was like, yeah, sure, we'll convert you to Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. So Constantinople sent off two um, missionaries, a guy named Cyril and Mephodius. Bear in mind who Constantinople are at this time, if for yeah, people who it's... need a bit of explanation. When we talk about Constantinople, we're talking about the Byzantine Empire, yeah. aren't we? Which is a huge empire at this point. Yes, I mean, the Byzantines are the remnants of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. So when the Roman Empire broke apart in the west, it disappeared, but in the east, it basically continued. And in the 9th century, it's like the Byzantine Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire is like by far the biggest, most powerful, most sophisticated, most advanced, everything 
player in Europe. Yeah. Certainly amongst Christian countries. Like there's the Arabs are also very wealthy and, and developed, but amongst Christians, the Byzantine Empire were like the leading light. Yeah, so they were based out of modern-day Istanbul, which at the time was called Constantinople. And at yep. this time in in history, it was the like city of wonder. Mm-hmm. It was so much more developed and amazing and grand, and it was just like next level, wasn't it? All these like yeah, stories yeah, exactly. and tales of Constantinople. Yeah, like literally, like you know, people gathering around their villages in like Norway, telling stories about what's happening down in the city. Yeah, and it was like they they ranged from like halfway through what was Yugoslavia, so that that area of the world, and as far uh, east as like they went really far east, didn't they? At one point, I'm like, this is mm. they'd like down to almost Egypt, I think, at some points. Yes, I mean, like obviously when they were. Sp- when the Eastern Roman Empire was split in half, the eastern half included Egypt, but by this time they've lost a lot of that um, yeah, okay. following the Arab conquest. But they still, most of what is modern-day Turkey, all of the modern Balkans, parts of southern Italy, are ruled from Constantinople. So the Emperor and the Patriarch, they send these two missionaries, Cyril and Methodius, to go travel amongst the Slavic people. And they develop like a, a you know religious service in the old Slavic language, and they develop an alphabet that can be used for the sounds of the Slavic language. And that alphabet is the ancestor of the modern Cyrillic alphabet used in Russia, Bulgaria, Ukraine today. Oh, okay, that's all the similarities then. I've always wondered yeah. that. And as hence the name Cyrillic, because it's Saint Cyril is the person that devised it. Ah, old Cyril. So. They convert the kingdom of Great Moravia, um, and King Svatopluk then sends Cyril and Methodius on to go and convert Hang on. his. Va- king Svatopluk. Svatopluk is the king of Great Moravia. Okay. He sends Cyril and Methodius over to go to Bohemia to convert his vassal in the year 872. Bojivoy and his wife Ludmilla, they convert. And initially there's quite some resistance amongst the Bohemian people, amongst the Czech people, and they're forced to flee. Later they'll come back as rulers, but they're initially forced to flee by resistance to this Christianity. Now, the other major player that we mentioned is East Francia. So, in the East we have this Byzantine Empire, and we have Great Moravia as the Slavic power. In Western and Central Europe, you had the Frankish Kingdom. So in the eighth century, they had had a king called Charlemagne, and he very famous man. Yes, exactly. Very famous man. And he conquered basically most of modern Europe. He conquered France, Germany, and everything in between, and Italy. Yeah. Um. His empire had been kind of a rebirth of like you know, political sophistication and learning and culture. There's a lot like back, back from the Romans, isn't it? It's yes, like, exactly. Basically, like culture goes loads and loads of written like advanced stuff, advanced stuff Romans. Then when Rome collapses, it's like a massive dead patch until and then Charlemagne sort of brings all that like literature and art and all that sort of grandeur back, doesn't he? Exactly. Yeah, they call it the they call it the Carolingian Renaissance. So it's oh, exactly like so, yeah, it is a Renaissance, <clears throat> isn't it? Yeah, it is an absolute Renaissance. So Charlemagne and his empire, they had been expanding and conquering, forcing of people into submission. 
In the early 9th century, they had in fact invaded Bohemia, and Charlemagne faced kind of constant guerrilla attacks from the Czechs and had to withdraw after a month. Came back the following year in 806, and this time with you know extra genocide and violence and burning, and this time the Czechs kind of submitted and paid their tribute. But Charlemagne's empire is this kind of rebirth of Roman ideals, and Charlemagne is very consciously copying uh, Roman standards. Anyway, Charlemagne lives on very long. He dies, he's inherited by his son, who then dies, and then his realm is inherited by three grandsons. In the Frankish culture, inheritance is split between all of the sons that can inherit. So he has three sons, and they split the empire into three parts. West Francia, which is basically modern-day France, is inherited by his son Charles the Bald. A bit in the middle, which basically goes from the Netherlands down to Italy, is inherited by a son called Lothair, and they call it Lotharingia. And in the east, a son called Louis the German inherits East Francia. Louis which the is, German. Yeah, like, say what you see in the Dark Ages. <laughs> he inherits East Francia, which is basically the, the central part of modern Germany plus Austria. Well, now we got that name, Louis the German. <laughs> so I'd love to see like some kind of like explanation for Louis the German. To be fair, like one of the other Frankish kings was Charles the Fat, so I mean, <laughs> like Louis the German didn't do too bad. So he inherits this um, kingdom, and it's obviously much weaker than Charlemagne's big, huge empire was. Uh, you know, the Eastern Roman emperors down in Constantinople had understood that Charlemagne was an equal and they referred to him as emperor. But for the successors, they just see them as another bunch of barbarians and they no longer call the Frankish kings emperor. Uh, Tom Holland, in his book Millennium, which is a great book about the civic period, it describes Louis the, Louis the German as a barbarian in Roman robes. And that's oh, maybe. how they see it. That would have probably explained the German then. Yeah, emphasising his yeah because not Romanness, yeah, because it's not like us, us and the French, where we had the Roman influence for a long period of time because they ruled us. Yeah, but their Germans didn't did that, so yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. non. Yeah, exactly. Emphasises his foreignness, mm. and this kind of weakening and breaking apart of Charlemagne's kingdom is how, you know, Bohemia made this switch from having Charlemagne as the overlord to. We get to our point in the mid 9th century where Great Moravia is ruling over Bohemia because mm-hmm. they're no longer in the power position to control them. And similarly, like in Charlemagne's em- empire, he'd been appointing governors to the regions, and now those governors were able to pass their titles down to their kids and they became aristocrats rather than like regional governors. So places like Bavaria and Swabia and Saxony end up with like these hereditary dukes who become very powerful and they're able to pass their lands and their titles down the family. They're sort of playing a balancing act there, aren't they? Because obviously they've got all these massive kingdoms around them, aren't they? So like, yeah, exactly. they're, they're, they're so small, like they've got to protect themselves somehow, haven't they? Because exactly, these massive yeah. ex-Charlemagne nations will just flatten them. Yeah, something like, you know, Bohemia's like a small power it has to bounce around who it sucks up to who it accepts as overlord while trying to maintain its own independence at the same time so the kind of trap between east Francia and great moravia and then off in the distance there's like you know this superpower that is the eastern roman empire so it's always kind of this balancing game exactly so balancing act that they have to deal with 
of securing their own safety while not losing the independence of the Overlord. So, Bojivoy, our first historical Czech duke, keels over in 889 AD, leaving his wife Ludmilla behind. She is going to be important later. And Svatopluk, his uh, kingly overlord, decides to make himself the regent of Bohemia. So Bojivoy has left two sons so behind. So the, the Moravia man, he yeah, comes yeah. in and is like, oh, I'm the regent now because... Yeah, exactly. He's like left to rule. Exactly. He's left two sons, they're both kids. He's like, oh, it's okay. Big man's here to take care of you. Like, yeah. you know, the, completely like the self interest is like blatant. If you were playing Crusader Kings 2 now, that'd be a killer move. Well, that's free. Sorry, it's Crusader Kings 3. Yeah, now. we moved on now. But yeah, Shows this is definitely. That fucking age, yeah, don't mind. <laughs> computer games, for those who don't know, we're talking computer games. Yeah, in the CK3 game, this is definitely the point when you start assassinating kids. <laughs> but, so you would expect the Moravias there ready to take over Bohemia at this point. But five years later, Svatopluk himself also keels over. Mm. And his two sons begin fighting over who's going to be king of Great Moravia. Ooh. Well, what, the, what was the inheritance law? Like, why, why is there a challenge to the... I mean, it, it, like the inheritance structure in like the early Middle Ages isn't like we think of, you know, fairy tale kings, where it's like the eldest son inherits everything. It yeah. tends to be either everyone inherits something, or the aristocrats elect a choice. Mm. Um, definitely, I, guess that, like, I guess that's like a hangover from like more tribal days, where it'd be like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not about what. There's no idea of a nation, like we talked about in the. The first season, the idea of a nation's not there. So the idea of the palace, and in this case, is the idea of the chief, isn't it? He's got yeah. the glory of owning all this stuff. He's got it. So no, his children shouldn't have that all that glory. So they all get a little bit of his glory. Yeah, it comes like especially you think of it like if you we think know. of it in like uh, really small tribal groups. Like obviously, everyone the warriors pick the strongest to be the leader. And that's how they kind of expanded that idea out as they moved from tribal groups to kingdoms. Mm. But the concept remained the same. And it's like, it really took a long time for the idea of the oldest son inherits the cell. Yeah. Um, so yeah, his two sons begin fighting and it creates a power vacuum. And in that vacuum, uh, Bojivoy's oldest surviving son, a guy named Spitinyev. Oh no, Spitinyev. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Beautiful name. He. What was I saying about these names, man? <laughs> yeah, they get. What worse. was I saying? <laughs> Check sort your names out. Make it so it's easy for me to say them. <laughs> love yous. I do love yous, though. <laughs> so Spitinyev takes the chaos and the opportunity, and he declares him, you know, makes himself out to be the duke. And he not only does that, he goes over to the East Frankish king, a guy named Arnulf, and he like submits himself to him so he changes who the leech lord is back over to the franks um, leech lord i've not heard that word before you know like liege Le oh liege yeah liege. sorry no, that was my pronunciation a couple of beer yeah that's no, probably his main mate yeah and so within a couple of years the records show that we have bohemians fighting against moravia allied with people from bavaria Oh. So they've flipped over and they've kind of aligned with the German slash Frankish people. 
But the thing that kind of really shakes up the uh, the chessboard in this part of the world is the arrival of the Hungarians. So the Hungarians have come out of like a Central Asia. The Magyars. The Magyars, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. And they've cool. started raiding into Central Europe and they sweep into what is now today Hungary. Um, so what's their story then? So they're like steppe people, are they? Steppe nomadic people, yeah. And That's a just... distance they've come then, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So they would have come with the hordes, like back back when did they? They they kind of were a new arrival. So I mean, like you had previous waves like the Huns and people like that, and obviously you got later on you're going to have waves like the the Mongols. So the Hungarians come at like eight nine hundred AD. Okay. And they're raiding, but they also begin like moving with real force against Moravia, and basically they kill off the Moravian state and take the heart of the Moravian state as their kingdom. Oh wow. So this kind of shakes everything up, and then also their raiding is like you know it's like parallel to the Vikings, but with horses rather than boats. Mm. But they're reaching deep into Central Europe, deep into like Italy and Germany. I didn't know. Fucking this. shit up, yeah. So what are they called? What's the what's the like local net? What would I know these people as? So like the in the like records about them as the Magyars. Just the Magyars. Yeah, I mean, like, our name for them as Huns and Hungarians comes from the German Oh, they're the Huns? Sources. These are the Huns? No, they're not the Huns. Oh, okay. So the Huns were also... Yeah, Attila the Hun. Yeah, exactly, but that was 500 years earlier. Yeah, okay. But German chroniclers kind of compared the Hungarians to the Huns, and they're like, oh, this is the same thing. Not the same thing. Magyars and Huns are different. Okay. Domestic but they also Henry, lived in they? the... They did mess up our man, Henry, yeah. in Kingdom Come. Cumins. Yeah, Cuman mercenaries. Mm. So, yeah, the Cumans the are another one of these groups like, yeah. around this time. Yeah, yeah. Got some so, cool kit as well, haven't they? Like, on the horse archers <laughs> and that. Like, they're all mounted and that, and they got them face masks and face stuff. Face masks, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the interesting bit, see. Like, you going to battle with like these metal face masks like over the face. Very stylized faces with big moustaches yeah. and stuff all and cast in metal. While wearing that, shooting arrows off horseback. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, really? Yeah. The skill involved. Obviously, it was absolutely atrocious. The devastation, <laughs> the raping, the pillaging, the disgust, but they got skill. <laughs> they got skill. <laughs> so, yeah, so the Hungarians are literally like Horse Vikings is the best way of thinking of what they're doing in terms of their neighbours. Um, and they kind of, they really shake it up in Central Europe. Now, Spitniev dies young and he's succeeded by his brother, um, whose name I've lost, Ratislav. And Ratislav becomes the Duke. Ratislav. Not Vatslav. Ratislav is super common Czech name. Oh, right okay. Now. I think that's a, a name that I know from the game. That what's, yeah, it, what's it called? What's the game called? Could be any of them, man. It could be anything. No, from, like, no, with the Henry guy. Oh, Kingdom Come. Kingdom Come, yeah, Kingdom Come, Deliverance. But it's a, it's a common name. Great game to all the listeners. Kingdom Come, Deliverance, get it. It is a great PC. game. PC, you've got a gaming PC, get it. It's on Steam. Get that game. Very I'll historical. Right very fun. It is. So, Radislav, the younger son of our man Bojovoy, he becomes the Duke and he's doing this awkward balancing act again, 
keeping the independence from Frankie or surviving the Huns. And he's playing both sides. Like in the year 915, he gives free passage to the Hungarians who are on their way to go and raid Saxony. He's like, okay, yeah, boys, if you're going through, just just carry on. Don't mm. cause us any problems, and we won't cause you any problems. Okay. So he's like, you know, making deals with the devil to let it be someone else's problem. Yeah. Which you can sort of understand from his point. Yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> and Vratislav plays kind of a complex game. He's playing with a lot of different powers. So he marries a woman called Drahomira. And Drahomira is from a group called um, the Pol- Polabian Slavs, who are Slavic people who live along the Elbe River in like, the parts of Germany, like modern-day Brandenburg, around Berlin. Okay. And she specifically belongs to a tribe called the Heveli. That's a distance, isn't it? It's not that far north of Prague. Like, if you think about it, it's not that yeah, but far But when you away. got no mode of transport, apart from horses, is... A couple of days' ride. Not that far. Really? Mm. Okay, fair enough. And especially if you're travelling along, like, the Vo- the Elba River, or Labe, in, as it's called when it's in Czech, you flows sail, yeah. out of... The centre of the Czech lands. Of all course, the way up. it does it you with the flow, ain't you? Yeah, that's a great yep. point, mate. To be fair. So he marries this this princess from the Hevelian people who are living up around modern day Berlin. And the important thing about them is they are pagan and they explicitly reject Christianity. That's so that who do these uh, Hevelian Slavs? So where she's living, from? Yes. Yep. So she is a pagan. Now she is married to. To Vratislav, the Duke of Bohemia. Okay. So Vratislav being... Vratislav is the father of our good, good king, king. Yeah. Okay. So you see how complex of a game Vratislav is playing. He's sub- technically submitted to the uh, East Frankish king. He's also uh, married a pagan princess from an area where the, you know, the Germans are expanding into, into Brandenburg. It's like the front line of German expansion at this time. They're sending settlers. They're trying to build settlements in this land and fighting. So they're enemies. Yes, and he's also paying off the Hungarians to go and hit the Germans for him. That's a sneeze. Sorry, mate. I couldn't stop it. I tried. I was trying my hardest to stop that coming out, but I didn't. Sorry, everyone. Sorry for the sneezing. So yes, he's playing this multi-sided game. Germans on one side, their pagan enemies on the others. And the Hungarians on the other side. And specifically within East Francia, I mentioned before, you've got these new duchies coming up and becoming powerful, right? Yeah. One of the most powerful of those is the Duke of, Sa- uh, of Saxony. Historically, a, uh, an elector um, of the HRO. Would be, yeah. Yeah, would be, yeah, future. eventually in the future. That's quite a major thing in Central Europe. Yeah, the but much major later on, players. we're talking like Renaissance period onwards. That becomes they're a big player. I mean, like the origins of it. There, they called the stem duchies, which like it's based in the German word to vote, which are like the big historical original duchies of the empire. Okay. Um, so Saxony is a big deal, and the Saxons, especially, are the ones who are fighting with these Hevelians and Polabian Slavs, Slavs, they are the ones on the front line. We've been there it's as well, haven't we? Dukes. Yeah, we have been, yeah, Dresden. Yeah, yeah, we're in a little Dresden trip together. <laughs> so exactly, you think of like, you know, 
You think if we're like the Anglo-Saxons, same Saxons were on like the west side, and they're expanding now into like where Dresden is. Yeah. This is that eastward expansion. Okay. So he's siding himself with the Slavic people that the Saxons are fighting against. And he's bringing Bohemia into this conflict inside of East Francia. And inside of East Francia, the various dukes, Bavaria, Franconia, Saxony, are fighting amongst each other as well. So he is allying with the Bavarians against the Saxons. Mm. So he's getting mixed up in the internal politics in East Francia, as well as all this international trading that he's doing. Why? It's again, it's like walking this tightrope. How do I keep Bohemia yeah, safe and independent? I, suppose... I play everybody. Every plate is spinning. I suppose he is in a really tough situation because he's got to keep... Yeah, it's his survival, isn't it, basically? Because they have to keep balance so you don't get invaded because yeah. everyone around you is like nine times bigger than you. That's it. You've got to keep everyone else weak, everyone else distracted, everyone else fighting each other and keep Bohemia out of it as much as he can. Yeah. Now, one of the things with the like, talk look about Middle Ages and Dark Ages is it's absurdly young how everybody involved is. Like, Radislav rules for a fair few years and he kills over and dies while he's fighting the Hungarians at the age of 33. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's all of these. This... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he literally is my age, yeah. And you think all these wars and politics and decisions being run by teenagers and 20-year-olds. Like, I wouldn't trust me to run shit. Yeah, it is crazy, really, isn't it? Obviously, because people, like, like like we said, being 34, we'd be towards the end of our life, really. Like, based on these aristocrats, like, um, you know, I was going back through the family and, like, everyone's dying below the age of 30 or, like, 35 at the oldest. Man, it's mad, isn't it, when you think that these were kings and queens in the age of, like, 20s, in the 20s, in the 30s. And I reckon that's probably why so many, like, insane or dumb or inexplicable things happen. Yeah. You know, it seems like, you know, so many battles are lost where, like, oh, well, the knights just charged into a wall of spikes and death. Yeah. But if you imagine a 20-year-old's in charge of that, that that's how that happens. It's mad how them just extra couple of years just, you know, rounds us off nicely. <laughs> <laughs> but with Vratislav's death against the Hungarians, it brings finally to the throne of Bohemia our man, Good King Wenceslas, Vratislav oh, yeah. I. The Good King. The Good King who is neither particularly good nor a king. So he becomes Duke of Bohemia, but he's 14 years old. Oh now, no, he's what a lad. You remember I mentioned back that his grandfather was married to a woman called Ludmilla. Yeah. So Ludmilla's still around. Oh, fair play to her. But she's old <laughs> now, isn't she? Yeah, she must be cracking on a bit. So there's within his court, he is the Duke, but he's fourteen years old. But there's also Ludmilla, his grandmother, and his mother Drahmira. And these two women have a real jealousy with each other. So Vatslav is close Hang to on. Ludm- the grandmother and his mother, yeah. But the grandmother on a fa- his father's side. On his father's yeah, side, okay. yes. So as you know, mother in law daughter. I'd imagine she was not also was she Catholic? She had been uh, like a first generation convert. Like you know, And she <laughs> was like a proper pagan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you see where this is yeah. going. So I bet Drahm- that was well dirty for him, not like, doing it with a pagan. As a Catholic, you know what I mean? Like, as a Catholic, back then. <laughs> oh, the sin makes oh, it better. I'm doing it with a pagan. Oh, God doesn't like this. 
but I do. <laughs> I bet he did. Dirty fucker. So Drahamira would have had to like go through a conversion ceremony when she married, right? But it's pretty clear that she just said the words and didn't believe it, and she remained a pagan yeah. in her heart. Whereas Lubilla was a genuine Christian. That's a common joke I think the pagans played on the on, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. on the Christians. Like, yeah, they, they would go and be like baptised and stuff, and they thought it was hilarious. Because like, like, this doesn't affect anything, like, yeah, yeah. but it makes you happy. And they come from like you know a lot of belief systems with multiple gods, and like yeah, cool Jesus, he sounds great. Let's add him to the collection. Yeah, yeah. And like I think Constantine, the first like Roman Christian emperor, his religion was like that. Like okay, yeah, cool, we add Jesus okay. to my beliefs. Uh, it's a bit complex, like, but he combines pagan and Christian symbols, so it's like he wasn't really a full souled Christian. And okay. definitely, some of like the later Norse Scandinavian guys, they were definitely seeing Jesus as just another god. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so Drahomira and Ludmilla had this, you know, tense, difficult relationship. And Václav, he was closer to Ludmilla, to his grandmother. So he was growing up with these more like uh, Christian values. And his mother didn't like this. He didn't like, she didn't like the closeness to the grandmother. She criticised that the grandmother was training him to be a monk instead of being a king. Um, and they also probably had some political disagreements about the direction of the country as well. Well, if you, she's from a pagan background, her idea of what a king is is going to be completely different to like a pious first-generation convert to like Christianity. Exactly. At the time as well, which was like orthodox Catholicism by today's standards. It'd be that direction, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it'd be, you know, you have to be a very intense believer to personally convert and deeply meaning. You know, like Ludmilla had been driven out of her country because of her belief. Yeah. That's how committed she was to her Christianity. Um and also the political context. Like uh Ludmilla's can be very clear eyed about what's in Bohemia's interests, whereas Drahomira is coming from this people who are facing like the onslaught of the Saxons, being driven from their homes, having their land taken. They're you know, their assessment of, like, the politics in East Francia is going to be completely different. Yeah. So I think this is also a big part of it. And it comes into the fact that the Saxon duke, a guy named Henry the Fowler, becomes king of East Francia. And their ability to work with Henry the Fowler kind of impacts as well. For Drahmira, this is the guy who's, like, genociding her people, essentially. Oh, okay. So it's like a big fucking no-no. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, to resolve their dispute, Drahomira deals with it in the most sensible way possible, which is that she gets two nobles, a guy named Tuna and one named Gommon, to go and kill Ludmilla. Oh, yeah, yeah. And according to tradition, they strangle her with her own veil. Wow. <laughs> so, Drahomira then makes herself regent. So she's still ruling through Václav and not giving him any ability to rule his own country. Um, but this is unacceptable to like the Christian nobles of Bohemia, and they overthrow her in turn, and they put Václav himself on the throne. The young, young lad. Young lad. So he's, I think he's something about 18 by the time he's on the throne. Oh, okay, fair enough. But still, young. But he's the rightful, yeah. He is the rightful heir, and he's the correct religion to be accessible to the Bohemian nobles. Okay. And importantly, he hasn't just murdered his grandmother, you know, which mm -hmm. is 
that's you know it's a, a bonus I suppose yeah so Vanslav then so he's on the throne then our good king Wenceslas and again he has to continue this balancing act on the one hand he has you know his mother's family the Palabian Slavs he has the Hungarians are still prowling around the place out of the ruins of Great Moravia which they've taken over and inside East Francia there's basically a state of civil war between the Saxons led by Henry the Fowler and the Bavarians so Bohemia's kind of strategy has been aligned with Bavaria as a way of keeping a central power in East Francia, thus maximising Bavaria's, uh, Bohemia's relative power, right? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for them, that goes tits up when the Bavarians and Saxons kind of reach an agreement and they accept Henry the Fowler of Saxony as king. Soon after, in the year 929, there's a united East Frankish invasion of Bohemia. And they force uh, Václav to pay tribute to Henry to accept him as his overlord, um, forcing his alignment with East Francia. So it kind of cuts down Bohemia's room for manoeuvre its freedom in international affairs. Like it, they have yeah. to turn the line. But it does leave Henry uh, Václav, sorry, to free to focus on home affairs, right? And his two main focuses are, in one hand, cracking down on the nobility, which makes sense. When you think you're a teenager and you've seen all this murdering of your family members around you, some of them nobles just taking you and putting you in power because they think they're going to control you, obviously the instinct immediately is to slap those guys down as quickly and as hard as That's you can. That's a pretty brave move as well, really, isn't it? It is. Like, that could easily have gone very badly wrong for him. Yeah. Um, so he cuts down on the nobility and limits their power. And he also gets involved in kind of the religious disputes of the day. So on the one hand, we have uh, the Christianity that's come through civil homophobia. So this is like a, they do the church rituals in the old Slavic languages um, versus Western Catholicism, where things are done in Latin. And he prefers the Latin rite. So he has encourages churches to work in Latin. He invites German priests to come from Francia to lead a you know, village churches in Bohemia. Okay. So there's like a conscious effort there to convert. Yeah. To be convert and align with Rome, not Constantinople. Okay. Like there's a clear split in like, you know, the Slavic religion, like where Poland, the Czech Republic, Croatia, the sheer logic of geography, like they are closer to Rome. Yeah meant they end up being Catholic, whereas like Ukraine or Bulgaria or Russia end up being Orthodox because they're closest to Constantinople. Yeah. So there's just a clear political split in how the religion plays out. But he is clearly favouring and believing in the Catholic right from the West more than the the Slavic tradition. Now the thing with like messing with the nobles and messing the religion is that that makes you powerful enemies. And on the 28th of September, year 935, his brother, Boleslav... 1935? 935. <laughs> Different series. Oh, yeah. His brother invites him to come for a feast. And when he goes, Boleslav and three of his knights chase Václav through the town. Václav rushes to get to a uh, church to claim sanctuary. You know, like inside yeah, the yeah. church, you're safe from harm. The priest closes the door in his face, 
and the three knights cut Vatslav down, and his brother Boleslav does him in with a sp- with a lance. Wow. He was 28 years old. So again, everything is done by children. It's really, really strange. So, good King Wenceslas then, he doesn't last on the throne very long. Like, he came to power as a 14-year-old. He didn't have power really until he's like 18. And within 10 years, he's been murdered. What the fuck's all the song about then? (laughs) How's that it? Again, then he's dead. And and then, yet we sing about him at Christmas. What the fuck's going on then? Well, so if we think about this a bit. So, I mean, like, immediately he's recognised as a saint and people start venerating him in cults in Bohemia and in England as well. And these stories and legends about him and his generosity and being a good king grow. Like, a few hundred years later, by the 12th century, these things are accepted as fact. It was like, oh, yes, good king Václav. So, exactly like you say, why does he have this good press? Well... Look at what he did. He focused on the church and did a lot to prove the church. Who are the people that could read and write in the Middle Ages? But it ain't the fucking sorry people, is it? Exactly. (laughs) It's the church. So he gets an extremely good write-up from the clergy because he did a lot for them. And this is where his kind of myth grows. And also, like, he was slapping down the nobles. From a peasant perspective, you'd be like, oh, what a great king he was. Because he's stopping them, like, you know, destroying your house and, like, abducting your daughter and whatever mm. else. So from peasant perspective, like, their stories are going to be, oh, remember what a good king he was. And the church are like, he was fantastic. Because he puts Bohemia on the path to being Western Catholic and not Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. So, uh, already, like, there's stopping songs and hymns about him. In 1853, an English hymn writer named John Mason Neal writes a song called Good King Wenceslas, which may be a translation of a Czech poem. And that gives us the character we know today as the good king who goes out to a, like a hungry peasant in the snow, whatever the hell that's about. Yeah, I don't actually know what the song's about. I know it's about something about generosity. Yeah, I think he goes to a peasant's house in the snow and he brings him food or something like this. Now, to wrap up this story, let's just mention a little bit about his brother, so his brother takes the throne after murdering him, because apparently that didn't disqualify you in those days. Okay, fair enough. And he goes down in history as Boleslav the Cruel. Wonder why. <laughs> Seems like a lovely bloke, I don't see the issue. <laughs> now, Boleslav is like, he's a reaction to Václav's very pro-German policies, right? So he's back towards, uh, back towards pro-Slavic church rituals. He's back to, away from... Uh, East Frankish political influence so he stops making the payments to King Henry the Fowler and this causes another war with the East Franks and they are fighting for 15 years now Boleslav wins every battle he inflicts some crushing defeats on the Germans and then it breaks down to like this raiding pillaging warfare but the thing is he's never able to deal a crushing blow and eventually 15 years later after the war started, Boleslav's son is defending a castle which is under siege by the East Franks. Facing the loss of his son, Boleslav agrees to terms and agrees to pay tribute again to Ugh, the East Franks. Five years after that, in 955, Bohemia, allied with the Germans, would decisively defeat the Hungarians at the Battle of Lechfeld, which permanently ends Hungarian raiding in Europe. 
Like it's such a wow. massive victory. Yeah. When was this? Nine fifty-five. So you say with the Germans was this with East? The East Franks, who we can start S- thinking the of Germans. East yeah. Still East Franks. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Uh, the defeat is like complete. They're able to seize control of a lot of former Moravian territory. They're able to move. Uh, Bohemia is able to who take does control of Bohemia. Takes it. Bohemia takes Moravia. They take uh, areas of what is now Poland called Silesia. So, like, the city of Krakow becomes Bohemian. And he also marries his daughter to the Polish king and helps bring Christianity to Poland. Hmm. His family, the Przemyslid, would remain on the phone until the year 1306, when the last Przemyslid king, Václav III, would be murdered as a 16-year-old because family tradition never dies. Yep. But what Boleslav did is put the Czech state, Bohemia, on course to being the largest, most powerful player inside of the empire, of the Holy Roman Empire, which is a position that Bohemia would have throughout the Middle Ages, and it would keep that position up until the rise of Austria in the 17th century. So, Boleslav, who goes down as the cruel, is probably the guy who does the most to set up a successful Czech state for, like, their golden age of the Middle Ages. I was going to say, the Throughout the history timeline, like this this relatively small area that you call Bohemia, the Czech Republic, has always been a state, hasn't it? It's been a state. It's yeah. been a, it's been a thing for a long time. So there's a lot of history there. It's had a really strong and consistent state identity, even with periods when it's been ruled by foreigners and everything mm. else. But even when it's been in this kind of sea of German expansion, it's retained its culture and its language and its identity. And it's remained something distinct and different. And part of the reason for that is it went into the Middle Ages like a very strong, unified state. Yeah. Unlike the other Slavic groups like the Palabian Slavs who have long since been swept away. Yeah. And they exist as a tiny language minority inside Germany today. Okay. So yeah, that is the story of Cooking Wenceslas. <clears throat> what an unfortunate chap he was. <laughs> It was a fucking tale of misery. <laughs> to be honest, I thought it'd be like such a fucking more like you've worked hard there. To be fair, to make that interesting, because if you just based it on only his life, that would have been like fifteen minutes. Because it'd yeah. be very long. <laughs> you know? But it's mad that how that little bit of influence from the church has made this whole thing out of him. Yeah. Definitely. Like, it's amazing what PR can do for you. Yeah. <laughs> nice. All right, bruv. I suppose we'll wrap it up there, then. So, there we go. Merry, so, Merry Christmas, everyone. Just want to Merry say Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's For us, it's obviously not Christmas Day we're recording this. It's the 21st. Uh, but we're in the spirit. It's there. I break up. Last day I worked tomorrow, ass, but it's Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas to you all. Happy New Year. And we will see you, I think, after a bit of a Christmas break and we'll come back in January. Yeah, yeah. We'll have uh, We won't be, obviously, recording next week. I'm recording shit. I'm going to be drinking. Yeah, that's my plan as well. (laughs) I'm not working, drinking. All right, then, everyone. Thank you very much for listening, as always. Hit us up on whatever X or Gmail or Pornhub. Like, wherever you want to get us, get us at somewhere. Don't forget to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice. Tell your friends about us. 
Give someone the gift of a wonderful new podcast this Christmas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everyone's trying to give it to you a podcast, but you need to be like, listen, these two guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> know what I mean? We keep it real, but we keep it factual. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much. <coughs> See you later, everybody. Bye-bye! Bye-bye.